Moon Pig. Hello world and welcome to the Moon Pig Tech Podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Richard. And today we have our iOS engineering manager, Dave Perry, here with us. Say hello, Dave. Hello, Dave. <laughs> Very nice. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're also very excited. Um, took us a while to get the next episode in, but I, I'm, I'm very stoked for this one. And today we're going to chat a bit kind of like about the evolution of iOS and how it is developing for that platform and like your experiences with it. So maybe you want to kick us off kind of like how you got into iOS development. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a strange one, to be honest. The, um come from almost like a, a games development background but more more of a hobbyist um and the the job i was doing at the time was was all mac based so it was all designed so i was used to working with the mac um and i picked up the tools and such um through mac development which was called which was project builder at the time which is the predecessor to xcode on the sort of the older development generation will remember that one uh, <laughs> And then, yeah, so I essentially I developed quite a few like small little games, generally for like the PlayStation Portable and things like that at the time. Um, when Apple released iOS and stuff, I was kind of part of the beta for that. And I had a, a close friend from the sort of the PlayStation development scene who ported his games straight onto iOS and sort of released him as doing okay. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of jumped onto it from that front initially. Um and then realized that making games is takes a very long time and costs a, a massive amount of money. Um, and then kind of <laughs> jumped onto the outside. Right. So I've been doing it basically from the very beginning then. Yeah, I was quite lucky to be honest. So when, um, for people that remember kind of first, but the first iPhones that came back, the, the app store wasn't there. So there was no sort of, there was, I think there was, it might've been a jailbreak scene then, but there was no way of kind of developing third party apps. Um, and Apple had kind of released various statements at the time saying that, that, that they weren't interested in, in that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they, they kind of, I think they kind of approached a few people and put, pushed out a beta just around, I think it was iOS 1.1.3 or something weird like that. But yeah, <laughs> given we're on 14 now, it was, it was a considerable amount of time ago. And so yeah, I was lucky to kind of get involved from that sort of stage um, j- just before it kind of went public. So yeah, I've been doing it for quite a while. <laughs> This was about 2007, was it? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, roughly. So, yeah. Everything yeah. was black and white back then, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> um, and I suppose that the, the device would have been singular in that it would have been the iPhone. Yeah, so I, I, I never had the sort of first generation, the iPhone, I think it's called, it's like the iPhone 2G. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I picked up the 3G and I was lucky enough to get a 3GS via, via work at the time as well. Um so yeah, the you kind of look back on how dated that that sort of tech is and stuff, and it was it, it was slow. There was a lot of considerations that kind of probably aren't even being made today, just around sort of performance and screen size and uh, things like that. So yeah, when when Apple started doing things like changing the screen size and stuff, it, it scared quite a few people, especially those like myself that had games. Um, yeah, yeah. I, and I suppose back then, I mean, everything was so different to what it is now. Uh, not only the devices and the technology, but, you know, the way we, we used the internet was different. And, um, I mean, I, I think 2007, I probably wasn't shopping online so much. Or certainly not. I wouldn't expect to have done it with a phone. Um, 
So it's, it's probably quite an interesting journey you've been on building applications from 2007 right up to now where everything, I mean, the iPhone is probably the dominant device that people use now. Yeah. I was going to say, what was it like then um, starting back back then when you first started developing? Was it like building an app for, a, for an iPhone? Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I'll ignore the beta stages because that was that was its own level of pain. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like 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 I mentioned, it kind of it, look it was onto Xcode then from what was Project Builder before, um, but it had been very much Xcode was very much built for Mac development, and obviously iOS is kind of an offshoot from that, or it was at that stage. So a lot of the things were kind of I wouldn't say shoehorned in at the side, but um, they were definitely not considered in the same way as Mac development. Let's say it was obviously something that had come up and they'd implemented quite quickly. I would say. Um, so at the time there was, there, there was kind of like, there was two separate applications. There was your, your ID and Xcode, and then all the interface design was done in something else, um, called interface builder. Uh, so as kind of a developer, you were kind of jumping through the two and saving files that were being picked up by different, uh, different applications. So <laughs> that, that, that wasn't particularly fun. Um, the biggest pains I sort of remember from it initially was. There was no kind of emulator or simulator, um, especially on the sort of early builds. So you had to build and run on your own device, which a lot of people didn't have at that time. Um, it makes the build process quite slow as well. And because of the code signing that Apple requires, so you have to code sign your application. So it's it's trusted essentially by the phone, um, which again, wasn't built into the build process. It was, it was so much pain. So you essentially you build the app You'd run it through a separate command line process to code sign it, then run it through a different process to deliver it to your phone, and then somehow try and attach a, a debugger to it. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't the it wasn't the most pleasant thing to do. But yeah, kind of moving on when it did start to pick up a bit of pace. Uh, it, to be fair, it's always been quite painful. Um, <laughs> things that you kind of take for granted now, like uh, dependency management. There was just none of that. But to be fair, there was no dependencies, so you kind of had to write all the code. <laughs> you know? uh, so yeah, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. I think pros and cons for that. Um, but yeah, even basic things that you, you take for granted, such as um, unit test support and particularly UI test support. Um, some of the some of the enterprise level code I was working on at the time for for iOS apps, unit testing just wasn't supported. It wasn't something. No third party frameworks for it. No first party. So. Um, there's definitely code still circling and circling uh, around out there that just doesn't have any test coverage whatsoever because it wasn't possible. Even things such as like um, UI testing or end-to-end testing, they're fairly recent things. Um, I'd say within this sort of like the last five or six years, that's really picked up. Before that, there was kind of nothing, um, which didn't stop us from trying various bits and pieces with, with like. Uh, third-party tools that weren't weren't meant for end-to-end testing. Um, there was some good stuff coming out of MIT with like image recognition at the time, um, which they were using to automate other things for kind of accessibility reasons that we tried to leverage to uh, get some end-to-end tests running. But yeah, you can, you can kind of you can kind of imagine out how flaky they were. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it didn't stop us from trying, let's say. Um, but yeah, the, the IDs uh, were so basic at the time. Um, all, all the kind of bells and whistles you get now with integrated uh, Cisco management and uh, all the nice things just just didn't exist basically. I suppose that's a curse of being an early adopter as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. 
not only are the tools a bit primitive, you've also got a load of stuff that you need to figure out yourself. You haven't got people that you can sort of lean on or look at other people's experiences or patterns they've used and stuff coming through. Oh, yeah. The, um, I'm not quite sure when Stack Overflow came, became popular, but it was definitely after, definitely after this. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you like, would you say the APIs themselves were buggy? Or could you at least rely on those doing the job that the documentation said they would do? Um, a lot, like I say, a lot of them have been leveraged from existing Mac APIs, which had been around for a while. Not actually that long because kind of Cocoa, which is the sort of underlying frameworks, was was fairly new before that. It was Carbon, I believe, which was C++ style things. So there were still they'd still been bridged across, but they were kind of well tried and, and, and tested from, from that point. So a lot of them were quite, quite robust, but as you probably remember, there was at the time when the iPhone came out, the, the phones themselves were actually missing quite a lot of functionality, never mind the APIs. So mm. um, things like copy and paste weren't available until like, like iOS three or something weird like that, uh, which uh, yeah, several people complained about, but yeah, the, the, the same sort of level, the basic things that you get now from, like a UI perspective, just 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 weren't there. Yeah. So so what has changed? Like what is what is the stuff that's like way easier now? What's the the new good stuff? Uh, yeah, kind of like you'd expect, really. So um, it, it's not quite as painful. There is still some pain. Um, so the 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 tooling's not not the greatest compared to to some of its competitors. That that's definitely for sure, and it's it's definitely not got all the bells and whistles and features that that some IDEs do. Um, but yeah, it, it, especially new versions, they at least for me, they, they've never quite fixed an issue with autocomplete. So it just stops working. Which um, in, in my old age, does it, isn't it's not the greatest thing to try and remember what these methods <laughs> parameters. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's normally due to like an indexing issue under underneath Xcode or something. But yeah, like a long-standing issue like that. But from from a feature perspective, um, we've got kind of all the basics you kind of expect now. So we've got third-party support for dependencies uh, using either Cocoa Pods or Carthage. Um, quite recently, they've um, integrated Swift Package Manager as well. Um, it's like a dependency management. Um, system that that's just for Swift, um, so that that's coming on quite well. And we use a mixture of both Swift Package Manager and Cocoa Pods, um, which is quite nice. Um, we get obviously built-in support now for both unit tests and UI tests. Um, the unit test was a kind of an old framework which was third party, uh, which was Send Testing Kit um, previously. Um, but yeah, I don't know if Apple wrapped it or if sort of Apple created their own, but. Uh, we now have uh, the Xcode test support um, and UI tests initially in a kind of a weird tangent where we've got, there's, a, there's like an auto record where you flick a record mode on and then you can tap various bits and it generates the code for you. Um, there's something like that, but it's, yeah, again, as you can imagine from something like that, it's not the greatest thing. And weirdly, the first few years of that, it was it was JavaScript code. But yeah, I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> um, but yeah, th thankfully they've updated that now, and we can write we can write the uh, we can write the UI tests in in first party languages such as Swift and, and Objective C. Um, they they did away with the separate interface builder application um, after a few years, which which was quite useful. Um, so now it's all kind of uh, in, integrated into into the same IDE. So yeah, we're not we're not jumping around between a few of them. Um, 
the source code management as well has kind of um, been integrated. They're, they're doing more in this space, but yeah, that's that's only coming the, the last maybe three or four years. So yeah, at basics before where it would use um, Subversion, but now they've brought sort of first-class Git and GitHub support in there as well. So that, that, that works quite well. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, so some things haven't really changed over the years. It's still a little bit flaky. I find the, the sort of smaller... Um, smaller projects where you're doing like a bit of tutorial or something that, that they'll generally work great. But when you get to something where you've got maybe half a million lines of code, several modules, several frameworks, different targets being run, yeah, um, yeah. The, the sort of size of the Moomba gap or similar is that, that's when it all starts getting a little bit, uh, a little bit flaky, let's say. <laughs> and one of the things you mentioned there was the move from Objective C to Swift. Uh, I don't fully remember when Swift was released, but kind of like when was it and how was the adoption there? Yeah, so it's one of those things again, like like Richard said, where the the, the sort of early adopters get a little bit bitten. Um, my sort of background, like I mentioned before, with the sort of games development was was C based languages, so I took to Objective C quite well. Um, I've got experience with C and C plus plus. Objective C for me wasn't really a, a much of a switch. Um, Oh, when, when Swift was announced and came about, the, the first two sort of major versions of it um, were, ju- were just lacking quite a lot in feature set. Um, and again, the syntax, especially for something like me who's used to C-based languages, is quite different. The mm. uh, Objective-C uh, and other languages like that just basically assume you know what you're doing. Uh, dangerous, I would call them in, in some cases, whereas sort of the strong typing of Swift and things kind of take, it takes a bit of a mind change, uh, mindset change really to, to get into that space. Um, but yeah, the, the early adopters kind of got, got bitten quite a bit on this because the first two or three versions of Swift, I'd say at least the first two, the Swift three wasn't too bad. Um, they were basically non, as you imagine, non backwards compatible. So new version of the virus comes out, which has got a new version of Xcode with it, which ships with a new version of Swift. And you need to do a load of work to be able to get your things to even compile anymore. Um, yeah. I, I generally, I, to be fair, I was watching it, but I stayed away from it. I wasn't from a, from a, um, a tech lead as I was at the time. I was kind of just, I need to be aware of it and make sure we adopt it at the right time. If that makes sense. Um, one to kind of just mitigate our, exposure to having to rewrite a bunch of code every time Apple decides to uh, bump a version or something. Um, and also just to make sure that at the time the team was kind of able to switch from one language to the other. Obviously, lots of yeah. lots of experience with one, one language and not, not as much with the other. So uh, I didn't really get involved with it until around Swift 3 from an actual development point of view. Um, but yeah, since then it's it's, it's been great. They've got uh, ABI stability in there and things like that now. So there, there are still tweaks we need to make each sort of major language version increment, but they are more of a um, a formality than a uh, kind of a hands in the air, oh god, kind of moment. So, <laughs> there um any any things that were considered to be the best approaches back in. 2007 that would now be problematic if you did it you know you've, everyone's learned their lesson and <laughs> said yeah we thought it was good but hands up no let's uh, let's not do that anymore yeah the, 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 there's a couple and it kind of it's kind of part of the with it, i think it's with it kind of being like a, a newish industry as well um 
And, and also a lot of people that come to, what I find a lot of people that come to Irish development, it's their first sort of development world, if that makes sense. So they haven't come from a like an enterprise Java background or such that, that an Android developer might have done previously. So a lot of them don't have those strong fundamentals built in as well, um, uh, which you see quite a lot. A lot of the um, kind of sample code and tutorials and kind of given code that other people had at that time were very much there to, especially Apple, uh, the Apple documentation, they're very much there to demonstrate the functionality of how to implement an API as opposed to how to structure the program correctly or nicely to be able to test it and use it. Um, and again, like I mentioned before, unit testing wasn't available. So a lot of the things that you take for granted, such as kind of mocking or um, sort of protocol and oriented program, creating interfaces around things to be able to, to unit test it, just wasn't thought of. So yeah, you kind of end up with a, uh, it's kind of an in-joke that the, the sort of MVC applied pattern that Apple used to recommend stood for massive view controller, which is basically, <laughs> view controller is basically the, the, the code that uh, represents and looks after a single screen. Um, but yeah, you'd end up with network code in there, database code in there, where they should obviously be separated out from something that's not dealing with UI. Um, yeah. Yeah, for, for quite a long time, people just sort of, accepted that and that, that that's kind of how it was um especially i think with uh with sort of dependencies being available now um and other approaches being able to be taken and think things like swift help greatly as well to be honest because it's a lot easier to architect these things um also apple have done a lot to separate out what these frameworks do and kind of give people options as well um so their late, latest sort of Swift sample code uses more MVVM style than MVC. Um, but again, it's a, it's slightly unique um, in the way that it sort of interacts with the, the new UI stuff, like the new Swift UI, the kind of declarative style of um, coding, your, coding the um, UI. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it, I think it helps a lot now that there's choice or your sort of normal design paradigms like Viper, MVVM, MVC, MVP, all, all the kind of flavors are, are supported in one way or another, um, mm. uh, which I think is a lot better than the kind of Apple says use MVC, so everybody uses MVC. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting, right, because sometimes in the Android community, people are like, we have all of these options. We would like Google sometimes to tell us what we should be using. <laughs> that, right? and I think you get that everywhere. Everybody wants a, a magic answer, which is you should be using this because of X, Y reasons and all the other ones are, are, are mute points. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, doesn't work that way. No, unfortunately not, no. But if, if you do find that golden ticket somewhere, Jacob, yeah, feel free to share it. <laughs> all right, will do. Um, yeah, so like to bring it now into the present, uh, when did you when you start at Moonpig? Uh, I started February twenty nineteen, so not quite two years yet. Yeah, um, so I think shortly after Richard and I joined, then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, it's been uh, to be honest, it's gone quite quickly. And when I was chatting with some of the the, the, the wider team um, quite recently, and kind of just looking back on what the kind of the, the app was like and the code was like when we joined versus what it is now, it's amazing the kind of change that can be implemented in that in just in that short amount of time. It's just a little bit over 18 months, really. So we've gone from a code base that was, for, I think it was like 45% Swift um, 
to a place now where it's 80% SWIFT code coverage. Um, the remainder just being like 20% objective C and a few other bits and pieces. Um, yeah, the, the kind of fundamental changes that have got onto it kind of architecturally as well as um, sort of feature set as well is is quite it's having been in the industry for a while it's a lot in the sort of 18 months that have been working on it um, mm-hmm. it's a testament to the team where they're all kind of they're, they're all good and uh, um, kind of keen at what they do to make the code to always leave the code in a better position than when they found it really so it, it helps a lot when the team has a um, sort of a shared vision on what on what good is yeah what what would be some of those features that you're especially proud of? Ooh, especially proud of. Um, <laughs> a lot of it for me is I, I kind of have a passion around tech debt side of things. So when we first sort of started, there was um, there was multiple things going on which were hard to understand. One of which was there was kind of like three networking libraries in play doing different things. Um, which looks like as the kind of the team had evolved over the years previous to, to my joining, um, various different architectural approaches have been taken. So there was a, like a mix of MVVM in there. There was some MVC. Uh, a lot of the newer stuff was written in Viper. Um, and the kind of, uh, as it goes, the, the kind of networking had just been re- rewritten in those sort of states that had gone along. So we ended up with like two or three different de- dependencies. So going in there and ripping all those out was was painful but fun um but from yeah from a feature set there's there's quite a lot going on there um we've done a, a lot around kind of being able to modularize and build up like individual pages just from the same content that gets given to web which i think is a, a powerful thing when you're trying to trying to push an app as well as a website so essentially the same data that powers a, a web page or a, the, the content of a web page, I should say, it, often we use that same data to render native components as well in in the apps, um, which I think is really powerful. Then, because it just it means that you, you're leveraging this the the sort of the same data, so um, it's working like multi-platform, but also it takes the onus off you of building these individual pages. Just again, just just kind of spurning out, um, um, yeah, native components to, that just back a web page essentially. Um, so I think that's the biggest, the biggest change that was made throughout. Although there's there's countless others. For for me, one of the the sort of features changes that I'm most proud of is probably the deep linking work that we did. Um, so this is kind of the next step of kind of getting the the web and the app to to function in the same way. So if you if if you're an app user and you get an email from from Moonpig or any other company, basically, um, and you tap it and it takes you to a website. It's for me that I just find that a little bit disappointing that I haven't been considered as an, an app user. Um, yeah, and that's and that's the same. So the majority of the links that we send out in emails and things like that now will take you to the right place in the app as an app user, um, which I just think it just it kind of rounds off that nice that nice journey if your preferred platform is the app. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that the team have done though and we do we do quite a lot of work um, on new Apple technologies as, as they're sort of released a um, couple of reasons for that one it's quite it's quite nice to be involved early doors and Apple sort of take notice of that so we've been featured a, good, a few times for some of these things that we've put in um, we generally get f- featured as well around sort of I think we've featured on both of us and <coughs> this year um, mm-hmm. 
Oh, definitely Mother's Day at least. Um, obviously, the app's quite popular around those times. But um, yeah, yeah, to be featured around some of the specific um, functionality we've added as well. Um, so I say recently, but um, in, in this past calendar year, we kind of added support for um, an augmented reality preview of your chosen card. Um, so before you purchase it, this was a customer problem really, which we're still struggling with on some other levels, but it's hard to explain to a customer how, uh, what the actual size of a card is. So previously, um, especially when we've got like various options for, for sizes as well, we've got like a standard um, large and giant, as I'm sure you're both aware. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it's hard to explain to a user what physical size that is. So previously we've said things like A4 and A3 and things like that, which I guess some people don't understand what the size of those papers are. And to be honest, they weren't 100% accurate anyway. Um, and then if you give absolute measurements in like in millimeters, again, that yeah, that can be hard um, to understand. Yeah. So the goal from the AR preview, apart from being a nice fancy bit of tech that we could kind of show off, was so you could visualize what size the card was. So the, the preview itself just gives you the card and you can place it on your on your table or on your mantelpiece or wherever and actually get a physical recommend sort of um, be able to physically understand what, what that looks like in relation to other things. And again, you can kind of change the size of that there so you can see what the actual, the, the real physical size difference in that. So for me, that, it, that kind of ticks all the boxes of um, we're kind of pleasing Apple that we're keeping up with their latest tech. Um, the the people in the team are happy that they're able to innovate in this sort of space. Um, and yeah, the users get in a, a, a bonus there. The kind of customer is able to understand and we're helping them out in some way. Uh, so yeah, that, I think that was one of the, the, the biggest wins for me. Um, and all this kind of comes out of the, the 10% innovation time that we get here at Moonpig as well. So it was something that a, a developer dreamt up as a good idea and that went through and, um, got productionized and then went out and so yeah it's not it's not always the product owners that have all the greatest ideas right <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's definitely a unique feature for an e-commerce app to have right yeah i mean you, you do see these features and i think ikea and other companies like this do it quite well as well um, although they're yeah like you say they're not strictly e-commerce or as e-commerce as we are let's say um but yeah generally generally e-commerce app is search product by pay next <laughs> so, um so yeah being able to put things like the augmented, augmented reality preview in this and we've done other other pieces of work as well around supporting pencil kit for for ipad um so this basically means that if you've got an apple pencil and you're on an ipad and you go to customize that card you're able to draw and write and do anything you want in that in the the sort of bounds of that um and again apple correct uh provide a, a a great API uh, that sits in front of that that makes it really easy for us to be able to do. So whatever you draw, we're able to turn into an image and then sort of leverage the same uh, as though you'd selected an image from a, from a tech point of view, at least for the card personalization. We just don't, we just save that image to the card and it behaves in the same way as you'd selected one. So it gives the user a lot of customization power. It wasn't actually that <clears> difficult <throat> for us to implement. Um, and then, yeah, the, the sort of, uh, the end benefit to the user is great in the fact that they've got essentially a lot of power and control over what they add to that customization. Yeah, uh, well, that, that's a fantastic feature for us. I mean, that people can actually go in and, and hand write a message. Uh, there's there's no other platform that we have that can currently support that. So I think really kudos that you, 
you did that one. Yeah, uh, again, something that came out of somebody's innovation, develop a 10% time around, um, thought it would be a good idea to do it, realized how simple it was. And then, yeah, I went through the normal product process and got productionized and released. That was really good. Um, and, and then recently, we've obviously iOS 14's added um, uh, widget support, which obviously has been around on uh, on Android for quite a while. The iOS folks are generally excited about it. I'm not sure if it's a <laughs> month and it will fade, but yeah, still seeing a lot in that on uh, Twitter and elsewhere about people that are still are still liking it. So yeah, perfect opportunity for Moonpeed to get involved in that space as well. So not after not long after launch of iOS 14, we were able to um, give customers a, a widget they're 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 able to add on their home screen. Um, and our initial sort of foray into this was just to um, have a widget for reminders. So these are re- really, really powerful for customers. So we've got the upcoming, bir- upcoming birthday. Um, don't want to ever forget it. We'll, we just send you a reminder, but basically either via email or push notification. Um, the widgets from where it will just sit on your home screen of your phone. It will tell you your next up- upcoming occasion. So it's it's always there. You can tap into it. It'll strike, take you straight into that and then, yeah, from there you can um, purchase your card or gift or as needed. So, again, our first sort of foray into it, we've got, we've got more plans that we want to do in the space for the widget. Um, there's more, a lot more that Moonpig can offer than just providing you with uh, um, a reminder of your next um, next occasion, basically, in that space. But, yeah, um, we'll be doing a lot more in that, in that area, I would expect. That's excellent. So circling back to the development experience now then, what, what does modern development look like do you do tdd is there any um automated testing you're using um we don't tdd specifically um uh, i've i kind of have um uh, personal opinions on it but for me i think as long as the 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 code and the tests are committed at the same time. It doesn't really matter when you get to a certain stage or if you wrote the test first or the code. Um, but yeah, I, I realize that's a, a very strong opinion from my side. Um, <laughs> it, it's not that easy to be able to TDD, to be honest. The, like I say, the, 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 how the testing sort of implemented, and especially when you get to a larger app, it kind of, it's quite painful to, to run tests. Um, we, we can run them in isolation, but it still involves building all the app, um, particularly in, a, in sort of a mixed language code base. So because we've got Swift and Objective-C, what actually happens, um, simplifying it quite a bit, but what actually happens under the, under the hood when you make a change to any code is it builds it all for Swift, builds it all for Objective-C, and then compares it for the sort of interoperability bridging. So every time you do make a small change, it doesn't. It can't just compile that file. It has to compile it and then see if anything on the other language needs it. Um, mm. So those sort of interim changes and commits that you get, uh, sorry, interim changes and tests you get from a TDD approach, just quite painful and slow to work with. Um, I, I, I do like to use TDD if I'm doing something that's uh, like a model or a log- logic object where the the implementation is going to be quite simple but you know for a fact that you want you need to test all the edge cases um yeah so yeah i know we'll take a tdd based approach on that but yeah we're no, we're definitely definitely not um matters for the tdd cars let's say um and yeah not, i don't think i've ever met anybody that is to be honest but i'm sure i'll find <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, from um, from a stress uh, testing strategy, like I say, the, the a lot of the functionality and sort of mechanisms were available uh, initially. Um, but for now, it's kind of, it's kind of what you normally get from any sort of um, uh, enterprise level code base. So it's mainly unit tests that we've got five, six thousand something in that kind of area. Um, everything gets unit tested, and we've also got um, end-to-end UI tests. So we're tied with initial um, how to do this initially previously, just around should we UI test a single screen on its own. Or should we UI test that the end-to-end journeys? Um, and the approach we took was just to do the end-to-end journeys, um, just relying on the fact that the individual screens would be covered off as part of that, um, if that makes sense. Um, the, the other approach we take, which, is, which isn't as widespread, is we use snapshot testing. Um, so basically we will, because um, we use MVVM, we're able to set up our, uh, our view in a, in a known state, whether that's an error state, a loaded state, loading state, or, or somewhere in between. Um, and we use third-party frameworks that take a physical screenshot of this. And then for when it when it runs via normal testing or via CI or whatnot, it essentially it generates a new screenshot and compares it against that one to know if it's changed. There's similar things in web where it does the same thing with rendering the HTML and stuff like that. Um, we use that, and that's quite powerful. It means that we don't have to unit test uh, any sort of UI col- code. It's all in the uh, basically unit testing all the view model. Um, that, that that was already here when we got, we've done some tweaks to it um, sort of over the time period and we're using new, new methods for that. Uh, and we're also using it to leverage other snapshot testing. So snapshot testing kind of data that we get back from na- network requests using the same library so it's not it's not specifically baked, baked to images but that's the kind of that's our primary use case for it um but yeah we're, we're essentially from our, our normal sort of git flow processes developing a in a feature branch uh, open a pull request on github for that and then when that runs we'd run all the unit snapshot and end-to-end tests on that um so yeah uh, it's kind of the the normal sort of pyramid i think yeah it's very similar i guess to what we also do on android so if it works it works <laughs> and like after after building it and all everything is tested uh i think in the past releasing was more painful and it took very long on on ios right but i think that has improved a bit what what does it look like now yeah i mean the 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 sort of process uh, release process in general for 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 apps in, uh, as a whole is kind of a um it's definitely a much more involved approach than just releasing kind of, say like a, a back-end service or something um we've obviously got a, a storefront whether that be the, the sort of app store or google play um and then through that there's a bunch of associated metadata for your storefronts that all the kind of text and all the legal bits and all the new screenshots and the release notes that go with it and kind of the final thing as well of um just the whole approval process so we can't release it and it goes in the same way that we can fix something that needs fixing urgently so we basically submit the app it goes to apple um used to be for up to two weeks in some cases and then they'd sign it off or reject it, and then hopefully it goes live on the App Store. Um, a couple of years ago, they kind of 
had an internal shift around at Apple just to focus on some of these sort of developer relation areas. Um, so the the App Store review process now is a, it's a lot uh, it's a lot quicker. So I think something like ninety percent of them get reviewed within twenty four hours, and the remaining ten percent of them get reviewed within forty hours in general. Um, so yeah, we we basically kind of mitigate that review time by submitting on a Friday. So we're not releasing on a Friday, which is obviously a bad thing to do, but uh, <laughs> submitting to Apple on a Friday, giving them the weekend because they work weekends, <laughs> luckily, um, giving them the weekend to kind of take a chance to review it. And then when we're coming, up, coming on Monday morning, uh, we generally just do the release. Um, so yeah, basically how that works from a, a technical point of view is we kind of have a, when we merge a, uh, merge a PR down in GitHub, it kicks off a different pipeline. Um, the first step of this will automatically build the app and send it to TestFlight. Um, and TestFlight's kind of like the beta distribution for apps that aren't quite live um, uh, on the App Store. Yeah. And what that allows us to do is once it's been approved by our eyes from a code and functionality perspective, that goes out and then anybody else, any, anybody else in the team uh, or in the company or non-techs, so with product UX, are able to grab that and just make sure it looks all right, our functions are expected, or just to show it off before we actually release it in gen, uh, is a kind of a good use case. Um, so yeah, that happens automatically and there's a manual step after that process. Um, so when we come to release on a Friday, we essentially kick that off in our CI. Um, what that does is we use a, a a third party tool called Fastlane, which is quite widely used in the community to automate a lot of the things, particularly sort of app store releases uh, and building and signing apps in general. Um, so we, we, we leverage that quite heavily to essentially do all the things, um, which is quite a nice thing because if we ever change kind of like provider for uh, our uh, CI solution or anything, we just literally move it across. <laughs> it's the same scripts mm. being run. It's just we just have to change the config that runs it. Um, so yeah, it's quite it's quite an involved process, but it will essentially build the app. Uh, it will sum up the submit the app with all the associated screenshots and um, other metadata, which is actually checked into the repo. So normally for teams that don't automate this, it's a very very manual sort of laborious task and it's normally falls to the product person to go in, type all the changes and upload all the screenshots in different sizes for different regions. Uh, but yeah, we have it all as part of our pipeline. So we just drop, if we get new screenshots or text, we just drop it and commit it. Uh, it's kind of a, a normal code, which is quite good for from an audit trail point of view, at least. Mm. Yeah, so... The, the step is to upload the app and all the associated metadata to App Store Connect. Um, we then we use Jira for man, managing the sort of delivery of the product. So we've got an automated step in there that will create will collate all the tickets that have been marked as ready to done, which checks against the code to make sure that they've been merged down. Um, creates a automated release in Jira to group all those tickets together and take it off our Kanban board. Uh, just creates a release from it. Uh, and then we just do some techie bits. So um, we use Crashlytics to monitor crash reports um, because we don't get the information we need from a sort of obfuscated crash report. We need to give them the debug symbols so that they can uh, uh, symbolicate it. So yeah, we have an automated step to, to upload those. Um, we have an automated step to create a release in GitHub, which attaches all this, the, the, the various sort of debug symbols and things as well in case we ever need it. Um, and again, just a, an, another sort of minor task that bumps the version and we're ready for the next release. Uh, and then, yeah, to just tie it up so we know it's worked, it just sends a nice ta-da sort of announcement <laughs> message into Slack. So, yeah, 
Um, that, that, that's pretty much it. It's quite, we've gone through a few iterations on it. It's, it's quite stable and quite nice. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a laborious task in general. So automating as much as we can on that uh, is, is definitely a win. Yeah, with those things, always a good idea, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, the, the the kind of one of the questions that comes up quite often is kind of why why do we release so often? Um, so essentially, like I mentioned before, we do it. We do the release every Friday. Um, I release every Monday. There are some instances where we don't, where we're on sort of code freeze regarding uh, around Valentine's Day and Christmas and all those sort of events where it'd be scary to release big changes um mm. in general we, we we follow that cadence of releasing every week um and yeah the, the, there's a couple of reasons around it really um one was when we first started there was no real process around it so i wasn't aware who kind of controlled or decided when a release was made um and yeah just from an experience point of view the more that goes into a release the more people get scared that something's been broken but not realized yet um, yeah. So for us releasing every week, uh, it puts a bit of process behind it. So there's no questions around when it's happening because it happens every Friday. Um, secondly, it's the amount of change you can make a week. Although the, the team are really quick and do make a lot of change. Uh, we kind of need to mitigate and we, we're never going to be able to do continuous deployment from an app mm. store point of view. It's just not going to work. So setting that, um, that sort of limit to be as small as we possibly can, but to make it worthwhile. Again, we don't want to be constantly in review with Apple because I'm sure they have something to say to us. And similarly, we don't want to be pushing builds out to users every day neither, because again, that's not a great experience for them. Um, so yeah, a week seems like a decent unit of time where there's going to be enough change in there to make it worthwhile for a user to release, but not enough change in there for it to be too dangerous that we're scared to release. Um, yeah. And again, just just leveraging that weekend time to allow Apple to approve it, so we're not kind of dead waiting on something to be released. Really, where do you think kind of like the iOS ecosystem will go, or what is something you are excited about? Um, th there's a lot going on in this space, actually. I was I was kind of thinking about this question earlier on because the question you asked around like the um, when it first started and it was a single device, just how much that's changed over the years. So yeah. went from like being, because that single device initially was an iPod and then it was integrated into phones. So it was an iPhone. And then we end up with iPads for tablets. And now there's obviously Apple TV and obviously non-Apple non variants of these things as well. Um, <laughs> and now we've got um, Apple Watch. Um, but for, for me, uh, I think a lot of it's going to be more in the sort of, glan sort of glanceable and wearable space. Um mm. I didn't expect Apple Watch to take off quite as quite as powerfully as it has and be kind of, kind of quite of um, as widespread just from looking at the market there that was kind of there for smartwatches when the, the Apple Watch was released. Obviously, the, there's quite a few Android variants of it there. I didn't expect it to be a big thing, but I see a lot of people just in general wearing Apple Watches for, for very different reasons. And I think that was something I didn't expect. Um, I think a lot of it for me is that is that whole glanceable area to it? I don't. I have. I generally have my phone with me, but it might be like on the next table, on the next room. Whereas, I've. Caught, I don't take my watch off. 
So yeah. that sort of glanceable behavior, whether it just be a notification or a message or a reminder or something on that, I think is quite powerful. Um, I think the next step for that is just understanding how they work more in sort of a symbiotic relationship. It's very much a, a, a take, I think, on a glanceable tech at the, at the minute. So you get a notification and you can't actually do anything with it really. <laughs> or you get some reminder and again, you need to, you, you need to uh, kind of action it on a different device. So mm. for me, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting to see where this is going. Um, more so in the wearable space as well. Uh, we've obviously had things like uh, Google Glass and all the kind of uh, Neuralink things that are coming on as well. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's interesting to see where th- that space is going, uh, particularly kind of from a, a health and fitness side of it as well. So the Apple Watch, like like a lot of these sort of wearable d- devices, they it, it tracks your fitness activity just out of the hood. So it knows... It knows kind of how many hours you've been stood up for the day, roughly how many calories you've expired, how many um, sort of minutes of exercise you've done. And it tracks all that automatically for you. But some of the newer things that are coming out of that, um, so there's kind of newer um, Apple Watches, you can run a, a ECG on it. So, the, yeah, if you, if you think you're having a heart attack, you can kind of, your watch will tell you. Um, I'm not quite sure how it helps, but the the... They can be set up to kind of auto alert as well. So if it detects that you're having a, a heart attack through the EPG, it will auto, automate, automatically alert the kind of emergency services, which is kind of that, that's already going in a really good direction for me. Um, mm. And obviously, the sort of latest iteration of the watch, um, it kind of monitors your blood oxygen level as well, uh, which is definitely more for the for, for the sort of fitness people. Um, but it, fitness folks <laughs> yeah, but it, it just shows the direction they're going in I mean the, there's some separate devices that you can get now f- um, that diabetics use that constantly monitor blood insulin through the kind of the sweat um, I think that that's that's where I'd like to see these things go um, so you are using it basically it's doing it's taking a lot of the things which have been painful um, painful processes such as taking your blood to monitor insulin or the fact that you may be having a heart attack um that it's kind of it's wrapping all those into it um and i kind of for me at least i like to see it go into the more of the the diagnosis stage as well so as you know there's kind of there's a lot of people that are diabetic but don't know it just because they, they, they don't have the symptoms or something but where these devices can monitor um, blood glucose levels for diabetics they can do it for non-diabetics as well and then yeah. if it finds anything that isn't untoward it could alert you to that so that whole diagnostic as well as sort of post-event thing for me is is kind of the exciting space for these i think yeah right and that doesn't mean that it's always going to be 100 percent correct that no. but like just in general and i mean Honestly, Apple Watch, uh, I envy you, iOS <laughs> folks for that. On, oh, I, I just wish Google would build a proper one. If I ever switch to iPhone, it's probably because of the because of the watch. So, good. Like, like yeah. I say, that I think for, for me, I, I initially saw it as a fitness only device, but see, it's been used in so many situations that aren't fitness related. And don't don't get me wrong, the fitness side of it is is great, but mm. the the general sort of appliance device side of it is. Uh, I don't think I could, I could go back to not having one now. Yeah, and I think it looks 
gorgeous. I think it's actually a really good looking device. Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and it might save some lives. So you can't go wrong with that, can you? Exactly. Yeah. yeah it's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dave, for taking your time chatting to us about iOS and your experiences. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, thank you very much to your listeners. This is it from us. Um, if you want to get in touch about anything that we said, or if you have any questions, please feel free to tweet us at MoonPickTech, or you can send us an email at techpodcast at moonpick.com. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Moonpick.